For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi, welcome to another edition of Unveiling Jesus Christ, the podcast. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about the canonization and date of writing of the book of Revelation. I'm sorry I don't have any uh, fancy name to go along with it like he's the guy, but uh, <clears throat> we are going to discuss these items and uh, I think they're of uh, great significance to understanding uh, what the book is about and uh, how it came to exist as part of our modern scripture. And that basically comes down to a fundamental question of authentication the authentication of the book of Revelation such that it became canonized in our modern Bible. And authentication is a, it's a big deal even in modern society. From uh, the time that we're born and we uh, have our little uh, baby footprint stamped into our birth certificate, um, that helps to identify who we are and somehow makes us uh, authentic. When you were in grade school, you might recall, I'm sure you've all had this experience, that you uh, put your hand in a clay mold and uh, then you write your name next to it and uh, everybody knows, oh, that's who you are because <laughs> there's your handprint in this clay and that's your name next to it, so you must be who you say you are. Whenever you go to the doctor, uh, don't they always ask you, what's your birthday, what's your name? And so they want to make sure that the person to whom they are giving the care is the actual person that's uh, paying for the services to be rendered. And so uh, you always have to, to give your birthdays. I remember I had several operations on my uh, eyes in the not-too-distant past, and uh, it, as I was moved from room to room, the pre-op and then the operating room and then back, every time somebody knew came into the room, they'd be asking me, looking at my armband and saying, what's your birthday? And I'd have to repeat my birthday as though, you know, I didn't look at my armband and just memorize it for all they know. <laughs> but anyway, it just kind of illustrates the point. And when I was having my operations, uh, when they were operating on my left eye, for example, they'd, they'd put a big X on my uh, forehead over my left eye uh, just to make sure that not only did we have the right place or the right person, but we also have the right body part to uh, to be operating on. Now let me illustrate the dangers of uh, what happens when you don't have a proper authentication by referring to uh, a movie called The Island. And this uh, movie was starring uh, Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. And the, the premise of the movie is, is that they're clones and they represent insurance policies for rich people who basically buy to have themselves cloned so that if anything ever happens to them, they have uh, somebody living in this facility who is their clone that they can get their body parts. Well, Ewan McGregor, who's uh, Lincoln Six Echo, he kind of catches on to this idea that, hey, 
something bad is going on here. Um, people disappear uh, ostensibly to get off and go to this island where they enjoy nirvana or whatever it is. Um, and he figures out that no, really what's happening is that uh, these people that suddenly disappear through this lottery system to go to the island are actually being taken to operating rooms where their organs are harvested and they're basically killed. And uh, <clears throat> so after he catches on to this, of course, he escapes the uh, facility with uh, Scarlett Johansson, who's Jordan 2 Delta, and uh, they end up in the home of uh, Lincoln Six Echoes sponsor, the, the real guy named Lincoln, right? And <clears throat> of course, people start catching on that these guys are loose, and uh, there's the big car chase scene which has to occur in every modern movie and eventually it comes down to the uh, this old building after the car chase where this uh, Albert Laurent is after uh, Lincoln Six Echo and uh, he's there with his sponsor and so now Laurent has this trouble because he can't tell them apart because the clone looks exactly like the sponsor and uh, in the tussle that is kind of going on uh, Lincoln, Six Echo, Lincoln Six Echo the clone manages to put his bracelet his identification bracelet on his sponsor and so Laurent's thinking oh the guy with the bracelet has to be the guy that's the clone, even though Lincoln Six Echo just managed to put it on his uh, wrist as this tussle was kind of going on. And so then <clears throat> Laurent shoots what he, the person whom he thinks is the clone, and... <laughs> <laughs> and so you see the Lincoln Six Oaks Echo kind of sitting there after uh, his sponsor has been killed and he just kind of whistles so, that was close <laughs> turns out the there was a misauthentication and the clone survives everyone lives happily ever after I won't tell you about the end of the movie but uh, everybody lives happily ever after including Mr. Loren and so uh, that uh, illustrates the point of how important authentication can be uh, and was important in the time of the, uh, the days of uh, the revelation and when they had to make a decision about what books were going to be included in the canon. It had to go through this authentication process. Now they didn't have the modern technology that we do. Of course, like for example, uh, today if you watch a movie you've got uh, these certain protections that you use and uh, uh, you, you get into your laptop uh, you have to put in a password and uh, you know two-factor uh, verification and everything else like that and these things drive me crazy I hate it when the computer sitting there telling you that you have to change your password for security reasons and it reminds me of the talk that Taylor Coat gave in uh, the Saturday evening session of General Conference in uh, 2023. He describes a situation where he was going to the place of his employment with his family and there was a new security guard working at the gate that didn't recognize his face. And so he asked for Eller Koch's uh, security badge with his picture, which he didn't have. Um, and the security guard basically says, I can't let you in unless I have it. And so his response back to the security guard was, do you know who I am? <laughs> 
And so the, the essence of his talk was to talk about we have to be humble, but uh, to me it reminds me of when my computer tells me that I have to change my password, which I don't want to do, uh, and I feel a little bit like talking back to my computer saying, do you know who I am? <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't do any good. The computers are pretty well set in their ways, and so you, you basically have to do what they uh, they say. But uh, we have these verification procedures that have to be followed. And in movies, if you have this really secure room, it like it's as this three-factor verification where you have to you f first use your handprint, and uh, then it has to have this voice recognition, and then you got to have this retinal retinal eye scan and uh, all of these kinds of things to get in these really secure facilities. Well, to a certain extent, it was that way in the, the Old Testament. There was actually a three-factor verification procedure that was put in place in order to ensure the authenticity of the books that would eventually be included in the canon of the Bible. And there, was, there were various players involved, uh, and so the, who, what books would be included and what would be excluded, um, there was a lot to choose from, and we had to exclude a lot of them. So there, it, it kind of came down to three types of uh, manuscripts that were under consideration for inclusion in what would become the Bible canon. So you had those books that ultimately ended up qualifying to be included in the Bible. The next tier down was were the books that we would call the Apocrypha. So they had they met certain of the criteria um, to deem them authentic, and they hold some authority uh, among biblical scholars and uh, and people of faith and belief. But they just don't quite rise to the certainty sufficient to include them in the Bible itself. And then the the third tier down was uh, a form of manuscript or books known as the pseudopigrapha. And th that comes from a Greek word, pseudo, um, which means false attribution. And so this was a problem back at the time that uh, uh, decisions were made about what books would be included in the, the Bible canon, that you had people who would write certain doctrinal statements and principles and put them in authenticate, authentic looking uh, manuscripts um, and they would attribute the writing to someone who was well known, someone who was uh, an apostle or someone in authority because if they wrote it under their own name it would never get any traction and nobody would ever put much stock in it and so they would uh, falsely attribute the writing to someone who was uh, recognized uh, trying to elevate its uh, importance in the community. And an illustration of how this happened is actually recorded by John in the book of Revelation when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. The Ephesians were um, chastised in some respects for uh, having kind of lost their first love uh, and having fallen into uh, a semi um, a, a state of apostasy. Uh, but one thing that they did do in Ephesus that uh, the Savior kind of uh, gave them a kudos was they had people who had come in their midst claiming to have apostolic authority. Probably these were uh, people who were what were known as the Gnostics. Um, who kind of came from the shadows of the Christian religion and then eventually came out of the closet and began openly professing 
ideas that were contrary to uh, church doctrine. And they got to the point that uh, some of them even claimed that they had apostolic authority. And so John records in the second chapter of the book of Revelation how the Ephesian saints kind of tested them to determine whether they truly were uh, apostles or not and found that they were not and basically kicked them out of the uh, their religious community. And so the Savior uh, congratulated them for uh, having taken that step, although criticizing them for, for other reasons. But this is an illustration of this kind of uh, pseudo-religion and the pseudopigrapha that uh, are these writings that have this false attribution and claims of uh, apostolic backing when in fact they they aren't and so the the pseudepigrapha was kind of a uh, another step removed from the uh, the true books um, that uh, were ultimately incorporated into the bible canon but even among the books that were adopted and became part of the canon uh, it's pretty clear that some of them uh, had the plain and precious parts removed from them as recorded in first nephi 13 where it describes this great and abominable church that after the death of the apostles uh, people intentionally and maliciously came in and altered the doctrines in some of the writings and that's why today in the church we have this uh, article of faith that basically says we believe the the bible to be the word of god as far as it is translated correctly and that's part of the problem is scriveners and people with uh, sometimes more malicious intent rather than just negligent errors uh, tried to change the doctrines to conform to their views of what Christianity should be. And so uh, by the time we get to uh, the, the fourth century AD, uh, you have uh, Constantine that makes Christianity the state religion in about 321 AD and by that time all of these various uh, alterations had already been made to many of the manuscripts that are circulating in the uh, Christian community. And in uh, 325, of course, Constantine uh, established the first council of uh, Nicaea, where they <clears throat> made the uh, first Catholic creed that include, among other things, the decision in, in terms of the Trinity and that uh, being a basic tenet or doctrine of the church of, uh, that was established by Constantine and remains a creed um, and doctrine of the Catholic Church today. But this wasn't the only council. There were other councils that were head su held uh, subsequently and the Council of Nicaea did not make a decision about what was going to be included in the Bible. That first uh, council was essentially to figure out what is our doctrine because uh, they had a lot of different types of uh, Christian religions and very diverse doctrines among the various uh, groups of Christians and so uh, this was an effort on the part of Constantine to try and bring them all together and say okay let's let's all try and agree on what the doctrine is going to be so that's that's the purpose of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Subsequent councils beginning with the Council of Hippo in Africa in 393 was the real start of the decision-making process to decide what was going to be included in the uh, Bible canon. And at the Council of Hippo in uh, 393 they uh, <clears throat> approved the 26th statute that set forth a list of the books 
that would be considered to be authorized scripture. And that list really didn't change significantly uh, in subsequent councils. But what they had there was kind of a statute that says this is what we think it's going to be. Um, but the council where it was formally recognized um, what the Bible would consist of in terms of the canon was at the third council at Carthage in uh, 397. So about uh, six years later, virtually the same list was uh, proposed and ultimately voted on and, and the books uh, included in both Hippo and at the Third Council at Carthage the Book of Revelation was included as being among those that would be part of the Bible canon and ultimately the, the end of this process kind of occurred at the Sixth Council of Carthage in 419 AD where you basically have a ratification of what really had already been decided. There were no changes specifically made at the Sixth Council about uh, 23 years later or so and uh, essentially that was where everybody finally decided okay we're going to quit talking about this it is what it is but uh, it really began back at Hippo and then by uh, 419 AD the Bible canon was uh, pretty much decided upon. So now we come to the point of what did they do to authenticate what books would be included in the Bible canon and <clears throat> which would not be. So the three uh, authentication factors, you know, the handprint, the retinal scan, the voice recognition are basically, number one, uh, the, the book had to be of apostolic authority or something pretty darn close to it. Um, so that's number one. The second was they kind of reviewed the doctrine and did a litmus test to make sure that the book did not contain any falsehoods. So this is where you have some of these, the pseudepigrapha where they come up and it looks like it was written by an apostle, but where are all of these wacky doctrines coming from? This is way out in left field. And so they kind of did a test to determine whether the book seemed to be genuine in the sense that it contained truth. And the third uh, authenticating factor was the support of the Christian fathers or the Christian community in general, but really they kind of looked mostly at uh, how the Christian fathers viewed a particular book to decide whether or not it met the third criteria for authentication. So let me talk about each of those just a little bit. First of all, um, the first qualification was it had to be of apostolic authority or from an apostolic source. And that's really what, what came to be the real test for whether the book of Revelation would be included in the Bible. The big question was whether John the Apostle, also known as John the Beloved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple from the, the Gospel of John, whether he was the same John that was the author of the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, of course, in five separate places, either directly or indirectly, John identifies himself as the writer of the Revelation. So there's no question <clears throat> that the book was written by John. The only question was, is this the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John? And the, the difficulty was, of course, that in the Gospel of John, 
he never refers to himself by name. He's always talking about himself in the third person. And so it raised a little bit of doubt. And for that reason, it became somewhat of a debatable point as to whether John was the, the author. But ultimately, there was enough support among the Christian fathers that he was the author, that that was really the thing that kind of uh, solidified the decision to include the book of Revelation in the Bible canon. Today for us as members of the church, it's, it's really not a debatable point because the, the Book of Mormon three times refers to John as the writer of the Book of Revelation. We also have uh, the Doctrine and Covenants that uh, identifies John as the writer of the Book of Revelation and there's just general acceptance by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that uh, John is the author of the book of Revelation. So for us, it's, it's really not a debatable point. And if we had been at the Council of uh, Hippo with our Book of Mormon and uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, we, <laughs> we would have been strong advocates in favor of inclusion of the book of Revelation in the Bible canon. So the, sex, the second uh, authenticating factor was that the book uh, could not contain any falsehoods. Now, you you can recognize the difficulty here uh, that these various councils had in uh, the late fourth uh, century in 393 A.D. when we kind of take that as the acceptance date is what did they know about true doctrine? We're right in the middle of the great apostasy and uh, many of the doctrines of uh, the original Church of Jesus Christ uh, were significantly modified in the early first century or late first century um, after the apostles died and uh, we had a fracturing of the uh, various religions. You had the infiltration of the uh, the church by the Gnostics and, uh, and other pagan sects. We also had uh, when um, Constantine established the Christian church as the uh, accepted state religion in the Roman Empire by that time, uh, you know, you couldn't hardly recognize some of the doctrines of the church and the uh, principles and teachings as those that uh, corresponded with the uh, the early uh, Christian uh, religion as established by Jesus Christ. And we'll, we'll talk about that in more detail as we kind of go through. But the other thing that you had was uh, shortly after Constantine had made Christianity in its false form, uh, the accepted religion of the Roman Empire, eventually his successors outlawed paganism so the tables were completely turned where Christianity was once the persecuted religion after it became the state religion it then became the persecuting religion and all other forms of religion and paganism were then outlawed in the Roman Empire and as a result of that uh, what you had was this tremendous influx of pagans coming into the Christian, Christian religion because they were basically forced to accept Christianity as their new religion and they, they came in at the point of a sword. Uh, sometimes, it, it's, at some point, Constantine was offering money for people to come in, but eventually it turned into, hey, you either come into our church or you're, <laughs> you're going to be killed. And, uh, and so you had this huge influx of uh, paganism, pagan, pagan ideas and uh, practices that uh, flooded the church. And all of this occurs by the time the uh, 
council members at, uh, in Carthage are trying to decide what the true doctrines are. Well, that's, that's the backdrop and that's the context in which they're trying to figure out uh, what the true doctrine is. And so what they use primarily as a litmus test is they're trying to decide what to include and what not to include. And this is specific to the book of Revelation itself, as they were looking about does the book of Revelation contain true doctrine as the second litmus test? They went back and they looked at the writings of people like Daniel and Ezekiel and determined that many of the visions of John in the book of Revelation uh, are similar in content and have allusions to the same kind of symbols and same type of teachings, same type of prophecies that were made by Daniel and Ezekiel and from that as kind of the baseline or standard if you will they determined that the writings in the book of Revelation contain true doctrine. And just to give you a little bit of a further illustration there are 65 New Testament references to the book of Ezekiel where there are direct or inferential uh, mention of uh, the writings and visions and images from the book of Ezekiel. Well, of those 65, 48 of them are found in the book of Revelation. And so this is what they were kind of looking at as they were judging whether the book of Revelation contained true doctrine. And they look, well, look how many times they're talking about Ezekiel and we all accept Ezekiel as a prophet and it's a shoe-in to be part of the Bible. And therefore, since these similarities exist, there must be this true doctrine exhibited in the book of Revelation. And so that was another helpful factor in terms of the ultimate decision to include the book of Revelation in the Bible. Now, the third authenticating factor, as I mentioned, is that uh, the book, in order to be included in the Bible canon, had to have general acceptance among the Christian community. And by that I mean you have influential theologians within the church as part of the church structure that we call Christian fathers um, who had a basic belief that the book of Revelation was authored by John the Apostle. Now these influential theologians uh, that we call the Christian fathers, they were, they were intellectual people that wrote things. Um, you know, today, if, if you put it in, in a modern context, the Christian fathers would be podcasters. <laughs> it would be bloggers, people who, you know, have so many followers on whatever, whatever blog or this uh, YouTube, whatever chapter channel or, you know, I don't understand the correct language for all of this terminology, but uh, that's who they would be. They would be the podcasters of their day, except they're out there writing letters and manuscripts like crazy that uh, we have some of their writings preserved and know who they are and what their basic beliefs were. But these were the theologians and uh, the, uh, the they existed in the patristic period from roughly the first century AD to about the eighth century when they had uh, a great influence on uh, the doctrines and teachings of the religion as, as best they understood it. Um, and so you have people like Justin Martyr, which really means Justin the Martyr because he was ultimately martyred. Uh, and keep in mind, even though uh, we call them the Christian fathers, don't assume that they had all the doctrines correct, but they were certainly people 
within the church community, the Christian community who had strong beliefs and they had faith in what they believed. And I, I think by and large, most of them were uh, trying to understand the doctrine as best as they could and were willing to die for it. And Justin Martyr was uh, one of those who lived in about 140 AD who uh, died for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he was one of the writers that expressly referred to John the Apostle as uh, the writer and receiver of the revelation. And so there's a, there's a fairly long list of them, some more influential than others. Let me just cite, for example, you have uh, Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, this particular Christian father um, was a disciple of a man named Polycarp. Um, who was a student of John. Now, Irenaeus lived in about 195 AD. Polycarp was actually believed to be the bishop of one of the seven churches in Asia Minor at the time that John wrote his seven letters that were incorporated into the book of Revelation. So when John wrote his letter to Polycarp in uh, Smyrna, Polycarp Polycarp was probably the bishop, and John more than likely was the person who ordained him to be the bishop in Smyrna. And so Polycarp was a student of John, um, and then he then mentored Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, who became a Christian father. And so uh, Irenaeus was one who accepted John as being the writer of the book of Revelation. And there, there are others, um, but uh, by and large, um, by the third and fourth century, the views of the Christian fathers were generally uh, of the mindset that John was in fact the writer of the book of Revelation. And that pretty much turned the tide in terms of getting the book uh, included in the uh, the Bible canon, but uh, it was it was a close call. I mean, there were people who were against it, and uh, that same kind of uh, positioning occurs today. Although, by and large, most people do uh, accept John as the writer of the Revelation. Um, there are people even today that uh, still do not agree that John wrote the Book of Revelation. And to give you an example of this, you have uh, some of the reformers. Uh, in the uh, 15th, 16th uh, century who did not agree that John wrote the book of Revelation because it contained information about the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, and because the views of these reformers uh, were that there is not going to be a literal millennium, the fact that John says that there is caused them to choose to ignore his writings as an inspired document. So an example of this would be Erasmus, uh, who was one of the reformers, a name that is probably more familiar as Martin Luther, who's kind of considered to be the father of the Reformation. Uh, he believed, he did not believe in a literal um, millennium and therefore he rejects the book of Revelation as an inspired writing that should be included in the Bible. Another guy by the name of uh, Ehrlich Zwingli from Switzerland lived in about the same time period as uh, Martin Luther and uh, he likewise was of the opinion that uh, there would be no literal millennium and therefore uh, the book of Revelation is not an inspired writing from the Apostle John. Other people uh, 
dispute the legitimacy of the revelation as an inspired writing, not because of specific doctrinal content, but because they don't agree that the type of writing is consistent with the way that John's writings appear. So they compare the genre of the apocalyptic writings with these fantastic images and uh, prophecies of the future uh, in that style of writing, which is far different than John's gospel, where he talks a lot about doctrinal matters and things of this nature. But if you do a kind of a close study of the, um, the two books, although certainly the genre is very different, there are things that are very unique to the book of Revelation that are only found in John's gospel. An illustration of that would be where John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God in his gospel, and uh, that imagery of this Lamb is only found in the book of Revelation, which ties the two very uh, decisively. And so <clears throat> those type of connections can be made even though they're very different styles of writing. The first person um, of repute to really challenge the uh, legitimacy of uh, the book of Revelation as a writing of the Apostle John was Dionysius of Alexandria. Uh, and he was a disciple of uh, a, a Christian father by the name of Origen. And uh, Origen believed that John's uh, writing of the Revelation was authentic, but his disciple Dionysius of, uh, of Alexandria did not. Well, he eventually becomes the what is considered to be the 14th Pope in the Catholic Church from 248 through 264 AD which is roughly about three a hundred years before you're going to have the council at Carthage and the council of Hippo trying to decide whether the book is to be included or not. So here you have Dionysius, the 14th Pope, who's saying, no, it's not uh, a, a book that is authentic and should not be included in the Bible. Of course, he was long gone by the time the councils were being held, but he carried a lot of weight going into these discussions and uh, disputes, if you will, about what to include or not to include. There were also some uh, other things floating around uh, about, well, if it wasn't John, who was it that wrote the book of Revelation? And some say that it was John who was just a presbyter or an elder in the church who wrote the Revelation, and uh, um, so they didn't uh, accept it. Some also say that it was forged by a heretic by the name of Serinthus. And so uh, uh, that's another source, which Irenaeus, who was one of the, the Christian fathers who did believe in uh, the writing of John, and I mentioned him a moment ago, he's the guy that was a disciple of Polycarp, who was then a student of the Apostle John. And so Irenaeus, in some of his ancient writings, uh, wrote um, basic uh, podcasts of the day, if you will, manuscripts, letters, that basically said the reason that John wrote his gospel was to counteract the teachings of those people 
who believed that the book of Revelation had been written by this guy named Serinthus. And so there's a, a lot floating around in terms of what people believed about the book of Revelation. But a lot of these dis differences and disputes uh, exist into the, uh, the modern age as well, and not everyone today accepts the book of Revelation as John's inspired writing. The largest block of uh, non-believers in that regard are the bishops of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, and in the Greek Orthodox Church, they largely reject the book of Revelation as an inspired writing of John, and you will not find it in their Bible canon. Now, to just give you a little bit of a background on who this Eastern Orthodox Church is, uh, you'll recall that you had <clears throat> the uh, Emperor Constantine who established Christianity as the uh, church religion of the Roman Empire. And uh, essentially you had one large church that was formed, but there came to be in uh, 1085 AD a condition known as the Great Schism, when you had Pope Leo IX in the West having a dispute with Michael Serralis, um, who was the patriarch over in Con Constantinople, they get into a dispute and uh, essentially kind of excommunicate each other from the church. And that began this great schism and it, it continued on for uh, almost 700 years and finally ended when uh, in 1729 when Pope Benedict the uh, 13th cut off communion of anyone who accepted the uh, the Greek orthodoxy and uh, and followed uh, the leadership of the church on that side and we recognize that from the uh, uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that uh, Daniel had to interpret where we had the head of gold and then the silver and the the bronze or brass uh, torso and then you had these two legs of iron and so we recognize that the, the, uh, the legs of iron represent the uh, uh, political powers that existed in the days of the Roman Empire and how you had the great split so that there were two of them and eventually you get down into the modern nations uh, represented by the toes partly of clay and partly of iron. And so uh, the great schism was uh, revealed long before it ever happened in 1054 AD in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar as interpreted by the uh, prophet Daniel. So today we have in the uh, Greek Orthodox Bible, no book of Revelation, but in the Catholic Bible, we have the book of Revelation, but it's actually called the Apocalypse of John. And in the King James Version of the Bible, it's simply known as the book of Revelation. It's not plural. It's not revelations plural, even though there are multiple revelations. It is only the book of Revelation of St. John the Divine. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of the uh, canonization of the book of Revelation. I want to now turn my attention to the place and date in which the book of Revelation came to be. We learn from uh, Revelation 1-9 that uh, John was on the isle that is called Patmos 
at the time the revelation was received. Now, Patmos is a Greek island in the Aegean Sea. It had a deep harbor. It's a small rocky island, probably about 25 miles in circumference. It's about 24 miles off the coast of modern Turkey and about 50 miles south and west of Ephesus, which was the first church that John wrote one of his letters to and was probably also the place where John has it, had his residence at the time that he was arrested, taken to Rome, and eventually ends up on the island of Patmos. Now, we're not sure exactly where the vision occurred while on the island, but uh, that's not going to uh, stop enterprising people from identifying a place, building a church over a grotto or cave where they say, this is the place. You know, it's kind of like Brigham Young. This is the place. <laughs> so, so if you pay the right price to get your admittance, you can see the place where they say that John had his vision in a uh, grotto uh, over which a church now stands. But at any rate, uh, Patmos was uh, one of many islands used by the Romans as a penal colony for banished and uh, exiled criminals. It's essentially the Roman version of Russia's Siberia, where people would be uh, deported and uh, placed into working in these mines on these uh, various islands, whether it be mining for lead or a stone of some type. Uh, the one thing that we do know for certainty is that John was banished for his testimony of Jesus and Christianity had been uh, criminalized uh, quite some time before John was banished. And so when he continued to maintain and prophesy about Christ, uh, that's what ultimately resulted in his banishment to the island of Patmos. Now, there are two types of banishment. Um, and there are a couple of different Latin words that describe these two types of banishment. So I'm going to try and use my best uh, Latin pronunciation and say that the first type was the relegatio, which is a short-term uh, type of banishment that did not involve any forfeiture of citizenship uh, within the Roman Empire or a loss of property. The more serious form of banishment was the deportatio. Uh, <laughs> don't trust me on my Latin uh, pronunciations. Uh, I'm just really making it up. Uh, but it, it sounds like it should be right, right? So the, the deportatio was the long-term uh, type of uh, deportation where you would have a loss of property, you'd uh, be forfeiting your citizenship in the Roman Empire. And so it was uh, the more serious type. Uh, we don't know specifically which type of uh, condemnation John was under when he was banished to the island of Patmos. Um, but in all likelihood, given some of the other circumstances, you could probably assume that it was the more serious of the two when he was uh, banished for his testimony of Jesus Christ. At the time that he was banished, John probably would have been almost 100 years old at the time that this occurred. He was the last surviving apostle and was probably deported from his home in Ephesus. According to a tradition by Tertullian, who's one of the recognized Christian fathers, the Romans tried to kill John in a cauldron of oil at Rome, but because the Savior had promised him that he would tarry and not die 
uh, prior to the second coming, he couldn't be killed or even injured seriously. And so uh, when they tried to boil him in a cauldron of oil and they figured out that uh, he couldn't be killed, can you imagine the embarrassment of uh, the Roman emperor? You bring him all the way to Rome, sentence him to death, throw him in the hot oil and scald him to death, and he comes out unscathed. <laughs> it must have been a tremendous embarrassment because essentially what they had to do was they had to commute his sentence of death to labor in uh, the mines of Patmos because they couldn't kill him. So that's at least according to the tradition of Tertullian and it's repeated in, uh, in several of the other uh, historians' writings and so it, it takes on a certain uh, legitimacy about it but you know all of these things, it's its a little hard to say, but uh, it could very well have happened, and uh, even members of the uh, church have cited it authoritatively that that is what, in fact, did happen, and and I think there's no reason why it couldn't have happened that way, uh, but we, it's just hard to say. So there are two views on when the book of Revelation was actually written. One I'll just refer to as the mi minority view, uh, and the minority, and the other I'll refer to as the majority but the minority view is that the book of Revelation was written in about 68 or 69 AD, which means it would have preceded the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. Now you remember on the night before Jesus was crucified in Matthew chapter 24, uh, the disciples were asking him about the signs of his return and the signs of the second coming. And uh, so we get this prophetic statement by the Savior about the destruction of Jerusalem that was going to happen. Now, he's speaking dualistically, meaning it has more than one application. The first application came in 70 AD when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem the first time, but that same prophecy also has application to or is a foreshadow of the type of destruction and abomination that will again occur at the time of the second coming. So that's Matthew 24, um, and Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Now this came about um, by decree of the Emperor Nero, who served as the Emperor of Rome from 54 to 68 AD. And so some people believe that Nero was the Emperor who banished John to the island of Patmos, um, and Nero was also the guy that instigated what is known generally as the first Christian persecution. Now, Nero was this really bad, bad guy. He was a cruel tyrant that began to rule at the age of 17 years. And uh, his badness, if I can call it that, I guess he may have come by it honestly because his mother helped him to ascend the throne by poisoning his father so that he could basically take over his position. And then after uh, Nero ascended to the uh, throne in Rome, he then murdered his mother. And uh, so that's why I say he may have come by it honestly, but uh, he's a bad guy. And uh, he's also the emperor who executed Paul with the axe and who crucified Peter in Rome. And according to tradition, again, Peter was crucified upside down uh, before Nero died. Now, the thing that really got the first Roman or the first Christian persecution off the ground was when Nero accused the Christians 
of starting the fire in Rome in 64 AD. And in this conflagration, as they call it, um, the fire burned for six days and six nights in Rome, and much of the city was burned. And Nero didn't do much to try and get the fires put out. And if anything, he kind of thwarted the efforts. And most people kind of looking in hindsight believe he wanted the fire. He may have set the fire, caused it to be set, and wanted it to burn because he wanted to rebuild the city as a newer and finer uh, Rome. And so uh, the easiest way to do that was to burn a bunch of it. Well, of course, the backlash of this was very significant. And so people started pointing a finger at Nero and to avoid having himself being the uh, one that's accused of this, he started blaming the Christians as having caused the fire. And from there, Christians uh, persecution kind of then spread throughout the Roman provinces. There's some question about whether that happened by official edict, and uh, there's no good uh, um, writings to indicate that uh, Nero uh, made a decree that the Christians were to be persecuted or to be dealt with in a criminal manner in all of the provinces, but certainly given what happened in Rome and how he treated the Christians after the fire of Rome, it wouldn't take much to imagine that that spread fairly quickly to the provinces uh, where the uh, Christians became uh, the sufferers of what is known as the first Christian persecution. Um, the uh, Because of this uh, belief, uh, a lot of people came to believe that uh, Nero is also the beast identified in Revelation 13.3. And uh, some scholars uh, use the process of gematria to try and equate the name and number of the beast of 666 in Revelation 13.8 with Nero, Nero Caesar. And gematria is this, uh, it's best described as a, an arithmetic system for translating the name of a person into a number. And the way that it's done is you translate a person's name into Hebrew or Greek, and uh, then you take the letters of the, the name. And since Hebrew didn't have any vowels, you take the consonants in the name that are left over after having been translated, and you add up all of these numbers that have various assigned values. And at the end of the day, um, you come up with a number. And so Nero Caesar, once translated into Hebrew, can, you can come up with 666. And that's where this uh, thought comes. And uh, we're going to talk about that in some detail when we get to our discussion of Revelation 13. And I won't spoil it for you now. Um, but the thing that I will say that's probably going to give you a hint as to my views on it is that uh, the uh, the use of gematria uh, can be significantly manipulated and you can come up with almost any number that you want. So uh, at any rate, now you kind of have a little bit of a teaser there about my views on that. So turning from the minority view of the book of Revelation being written in the time of Nero, we come now to the majority view which is that the book of Revelation was written in about 95 or 96 AD. And I just, for shorthand uh, purposes, I just call it 96 AD. At that time, Domitian was the Roman emperor. Um, he served from uh, 81 AD until 96 AD when he was assassinated. He was part of what is known as the Flavian dynasty. So you begin with Nero. Um, who had a son 
by the name of Vespasian, and uh, Vespasian had a son by the name of Titus, um, and Vespasian also had another son by the name of Domitian. And so in order of emperorship, you had Nero, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, a father, son, and a brother, uh, who became part of the, uh, the Flavian dynasty. And so Domitian was a guy who was nearly as bad and as murderous as uh, Nero before him. And uh, he, he was not particularly discriminatory, however, between Jews and Christians. And so he was equally a tyrant to, to both of them. Uh, some people believe that he was actually the reincarnation of Nero based on the, the, his similar disposition toward people. And so one of the things that uh, Domitian did that gave rise or was part of the uh, second Christian persecution was he instigated attacks on Jews. And so if you were a Jew, you would be taxed. And so when the Christians said, well, I'm not Jewish, I'm Christian, they even had a worse fate. <laughs> you're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't. So uh, uh, that was something that uh, he in, imposed. But the, the greater reason for the his instigation of the second Christian persecution was this rumor that had begun that uh, there was going to be an overthrow of the Roman government by a descendant of Jesus. And so that's when he really started coming down on the uh, the Christians. And in addition to that, he proclaimed himself to be deity. And when the Christians refused to worship him as a god, um, well, that created problems and uh, resulted ultimately in the uh, second persecution. And uh, so that's uh, what happened. And, and when Domitian uh, finally died in 96 A.D., by assassination, uh, John was released. He sort of got amnesty from the next emperor by the name of Nerva. And that was not unusual. It's kind of like we have presidential pardons today. And in that day, when you got a new uh, emperor coming in to kind of foster and promote goodwill and, hey, I'm a good guy. I'm going to release a bunch of criminals um, from uh, uh, the prisons and, you know, so much for tough on crime position. But uh, Nerva came in and uh, through this broad uh, giving of amnesty, John was able to return home and live again at uh, Ephesus. And so we know that Nerva came to power in 96 AD. And so uh, there's the ancient tradition that John was exiled to Patmos for about 18 months, which gives us a pretty close time period between 95 and 96 AD in which the revelation must have occurred. And as I mentioned, I just kind of say 96 as a shorthand uh, view of when it was written. And I personally am of the opinion that the majority view is correct, that uh, the book of Revelation uh, was uh, received by John in about 96 AD. Now, the, the minority position kind of takes some strength for its position in the idea that the revelation itself talks about how it is a revelation of things which must shortly come to pass and you'll find that phraseology in both the first chapter you'll find it in the fourth chapter um, and so those who take the view that it must have been written in uh, no later than 69 AD they're assuming that the events which must shortly come to pass refers to the destruction of Jerusalem 
in 70 AD, but they're clearly taking the word shortly too literally. Um, and even if we assume that we're looking for the destruction of Jerusalem or certain rather, rather catastrophic events in the history of the church and in the history of the Jews on kind of a literal basis, then the, the vision in 96 AD is still very acceptable because Jerusalem was destroyed again in 135 AD. And so what happened after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that destruction was uh, so significant that the, the temple was destroyed. There wasn't one stone left standing on the other. The whole city was pretty much wiped out and the Jews as a nation really no longer existed. They didn't have a Sanhedrin. They didn't have a temple to worship in. And uh, certainly not all the Jews were uh, taken uh, to the Colosseum to meet their death there. Or many of them were sold as slaves. But I mean, they still existed in these pockets uh, as Jewish people. But they were forbidden to go back to Jerusalem, which uh, had the Romans build another city on the uh, site of the uh, old city that they had destroyed, and they called it Alia Capitolina. <clears throat> and so the Jews were forbidden to come into this city except on one day of the year, and that was the ninth day of Av, which was the month, the day and month in which Jerusalem was destroyed. On that one day, they allowed the Jews to come back into Aliyah Capitolina, where they could go to the western wall of the foundation of the temple that had been destroyed, and there they could worship. And that's really where the practice that still goes continues today of Jewish worshipers at the western wall, it came back from that period of time when the Romans allowed the Jews on that one day a year to go in and to worship at that site. Um, but uh, essentially what happened is <clears throat> there was a lot of uh, hatred of the Romans and uh, and so uh, there, there came to be a second Jewish revolt which is called the Bar Kokhba revolt and it was led by a man by the name of Simeon ben Kosiba um, and uh, he was uh, called the, uh, the son of the star and he was seen to be a Messiah that had been predicted in Numbers 24:17, which says that there would be a star that would come out of Jacob, and uh, he was the guy that uh, essentially identified himself as the Messiah, which, of course, the Savior predicted that there would be false Christs and uh, false prophets, and, and he was among them. But he, he incited all the Jews to come back to Jerusalem, uh, they kicked the Romans out of Alia Capitolina. They built a temporary altar and, and started offering sacrifices. And so when the people saw his success in coming back and kicking the Romans out, um, they truly believed that this is the Messiah that they had truly been waiting for. And that guy, Jesus, who only brought a spiritual kingdom, he's not the guy, but Simeon ben Kosiba is the true Messiah. He's the political guy that is going to um, kick the Romans out and uh, reestablish uh, Israel as a political state. Um, but eventually, his revolt, um, the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, resulted in the, the loss of hundreds of thousands of Jewish lives. Um, and uh, the, of course, they 
they killed him and afterwards the uh, the Jews uh, took his name and did a play on words and instead of calling him Simon ben Kosiba they used a, he a Hebrew pun and called him Kasab, which means a liar. So they turned Kosiba into Koziba with a Z, which is the son of a liar. And so uh, that's how he ultimately came to be viewed by the Jewish people after his uh, unsuccessful re revolt uh, left thousands and thousands of Jews, 895 uh, Jewish villages destroyed. And uh, that was the same point in time when uh, Judea was renamed by the Romans and became uh, named Syria-Palestina. So Judea no longer existed after about 135 AD when that revolt came to an end. And we now have some of the familiar terms in modern terminology of Syria and Palestine. It was Syria-Palestina. And uh, so we have in the book of Revelation uh, this concept that uh, even if you think that the things which must shortly come to pass have to do with things specifically relating to Jerusalem and the Jews and the destruction, everyone should be equally satisfied with 96 AD as they would be um, in the time of Nero back in 68 or 69 AD. And uh, essentially, um, I want to just kind of conclude by talking a little bit about what a miracle it is that the book of Revelation came to be part of the Bible canon at all. Now, if I was a, uh, a bookie and we wanted to uh, take wagers on the chances that the book of Revelation would be included in part of the Bible that we have today, you know, I'd give you 100 to 1 odds, but, you know, fortunately I'm not a betting man. And so I'll just say the uh, the conditions and circumstances leading up to the book of Revelation being part of our Bible today is nothing short of a miracle. When you think about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, we, we also recognize that as uh, a miracle. But I think when you compare the nature of these miracles, we have essentially Moroni, who buries the golden plates uh, in the Hill Cumorah somewhere around 420 AD. He dies, he comes back as a resurrected being, tells Joseph Smith where to go dig up the plates. Joseph Smith gets the plates. That's very much a miracle, and uh, you can see the hand of God. There's no question about it. But consider the much more difficult circumstances in which the book of Revelation managed to survive. It's a miracle that the book of Revelation got off the island of Patmos, where John is basically describing the Roman Empire in symbolic terms as this hideous beast uh, that is one day going to be taken out by uh, Jesus Christ at the time of his second coming. I mean, this is treasonous language. And yet, because of the symbolism, the Romans didn't understand what John was really writing. And so the, the book was circulated. It got off the island. It gets circulated among the uh, seven churches in Asia Minor and more broadly. And it still exists as a book by the time 
the uh, Council of Hippo is held in uh, 363 AD, and uh, they include it among the books. And when they're trying to figure out what uh, are the truths of the book that uh, authenticate it as one that should be included in the canon of the Bible, you have the, these council members that are being described by the book of Revelation as well. And we'll, we'll talk about that in more detail in uh, future podcasts, but he's writing about these circumstances and he's pointing a finger at them and saying, there's a problem here with your doctrines, with the church and the apostasy and all these other things that suggest that if they truly knew what they were doing and understood the content of the book of Revelation at the time they were all voting to include it in the Bible canon. They never, ever would have included it in the Bible that we have today. And so the, the book of Revelation has this miraculous journey that it makes from the island of Patmos in 96 AD, and it finds its way into our hands. And this is the prophecy that was given in the, uh, the book of uh, Mormon. If we go to the book of Ether, and I've, I've talked about this scripture before, but let me just cite it in this context where Moroni prophesies about the coming forth of the book of Revelation in the last days. And he says this in Ether 4.16, And then shall my revelations, which I have caused to be written by my servant John, be unfolded in the eyes of all the people. Remember that when ye see these things, ye shall know that the time is at hand, that they shall be made manifest in very deed. It's a miracle that we have that prophecy that is now about to be fulfilled and is being fulfilled in our time. Because if you look at the circumstances leading to the canonization of the book of Revelation as part of the Bible, um, by all objective accounts, it never should have happened. And yet you can see the Lord's hand in it uh, just the same way you can see the Lord's hand in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And uh, the Bible has many things um, that uh, will help us in these latter days to understand the signs of the time. And one of the premier books of the Bible is the Book of Revelation that can teach us all things that we should know and that we should understand to help us prepare for the second coming. And I, I hope that that will be the case for all of us. I'll see you next week.